Well, welcome. Uh, my name is Steve Moses, and I live in Nashville, Tennessee. And say again? You're headed there next. Well, there you go. We'll hang out. Um, and I just recently moved there. Uh, I used to live in Memphis, Tennessee for the past 18 years. Um, and you know, I'll share some of my story throughout this. But what I'd like to do is pray for us. And uh, really ask the Lord to speak to all of our hearts uh, over this next hour. So Father, we come to you now and acknowledge that you are with us. Lord, we thank you that it's by the power of the Spirit of the living God that lives are transformed. And Lord, there's a lot going on in this room, in all of our hearts and our minds. And we come in from various backgrounds. And Lord, there's a lot that, uh, even motivations while we came to this breakout. Maybe it's because it was the one that just was next door and we didn't want to walk anywhere. Or maybe it was... Uh, because we're thinking of someone else, or maybe it's because of things that are in our own heart. So, Lord, I'm trusting you to speak to all of us. Speak to myself, speak to my brothers and sisters here now. And may you be honored and lifted up, made much of in our time together. You know, we pray. Amen. So I'm like tethered to this thing over here. Okay, which is really annoying to me, but we'll work through it. So, uh, I work alongside what's called the Trauma Healing Institute, and I want to say this before we even get started. I meant to say this earlier. Uh, at the end, my contact information is on there. If you want all these slides, you can just email me, and I'll send you all the slides to make your life a lot easier. So that we're practicing, we're practicing listening skills better than just taking copious notes. How about that? So, with that, um, it's a it's a global collaboration of entities and organizations that are helping with um, worldwide trauma. And part of that is equipping and training people so it multiplies out, so that we just don't keep coming back in. They were training. Locals, nationals, doing that. And we'll tell more of that history, and if you want to hear some of that, I can share that. So, I want to, def- I want to start with what, is, what are we talking about with trauma? What do, I, what do we mean by that? Uh, there's a lot of people talking about trauma these days. There's like a multitude of breakouts that you could have gone to. There's a multitude of breakouts that we're talking about, different things. But the reality is, we're talking about this suffering, and we call it trauma. And with that... What I'm talking about is a person that is going to be experiencing intense fear, uh, helplessness, and horror in the midst of danger or, or death. And the way I usually describe this is that we all need to grieve, and um, but grief and trauma, sometimes people try to make those the same thing. And what I'm trying to tell you is that they involve one another, but they're not the same thing, right? And so we understand that 
all of trauma involves grieving, but not all of grieving actually is going to have trauma involved. I use the example of if my mom were to call me right now and tell me that my grandmother passed away after living a long life. This is not a true story, by the way. This is just, I'm making these things up, right? And I would grieve that loss, right? But if she were to call me and tell me the same news and someone came in and, and murdered my grandmother or she got ran over or she had a car accident, there's going to be more trauma there, right? And so we need to understand the difference of that. People talk about big trauma, small trauma. We won't get into all that today, but understand that. So that it affects us and affects our mind, body, it affects the way we act, the things we do, right? The, the, we feel, how we say. And the thing that's interesting is that one in seven people worldwide are, are, are traumatized. I actually think that is a low number. Okay? So I just recently moved, like I said, to Nashville. We've done some data there over the past year or so. And we see that even there, it's a, about two out of every three people in Nashville say that they have experienced trauma in their life. Uh, and so even there, it's, it's higher on some level. So one out of seven people worldwide, and then um, this here, uh, I used to be the director of an organization that resettled refugees, and this was staggering to me, right, that and a refugee has gone through a lot more than the general population, and that they're dealing with symptoms of PTSD, dealing with PTSD, and so we're seeing that trauma is prevalent, I was just telling a friend of mine when we were sitting up there, and I said, I'm going to say this here in about five seconds when I get on stage and share this. It's that trauma doesn't play any favorites. Trauma is not for those people. It's not for the poor. It's not for people that don't live in the United States. It's not for just men or women. It's not for children. It's all are affected by this. And I think we're becoming more aware of what that looks like. Thus, we're having more conversations about it. Thus, we're realizing that we, the church, have not really been informed about how to do this and do it in a way that uh, is God-honoring even. So, we talk about that. It's We refer to it a lot of times. Trauma is hard to translate in multiple languages. So a lot of times we talk about there's a heart womb, okay? So we use that verbiage. Something that's, we talk about a physical womb, we compare that to like a heart womb and what the difference of that is. And that it's affecting our relationships, it's affecting our faith. Trust has been broken with human beings and or with God. Thus, we're trying to restore that, right? We're trying to help repair that. What does it look like? And so with that, uh, this illustration. And to help you understand and help explain that. So we talk about this, and this is used in our teen curriculum, right? So we're helping teens understand what's going on with their body, right? So we talk about there's an upstairs brain, there's a downstairs brain, and there's a stairway that kind of has those emotions going on it. And then there's this watchdog at the bottom, right? So it's designed to be simple because we're trying to translate it across multiple languages and trying to get people to understand with that. So the reality is the thinking part upstairs processing faster. Bottom not processing as fast, right? Okay? And the connectivity of the emotions there. The reality is the way that thing our brain is developed, 
right? Part of it is developing early on, and then some of it's not developing until we're all the way into our mid-20s, right? So it's affecting these emotions that we're having. And so um, what happens is we have this watchdog there. And this watchdog is actually helpful, right? Because it helps us to know if, our, if something's in danger, right? If we're in danger. And usually our tendency goes into fight, right? We're going to react to that. Or we're going to flee, flight, or we're going to freeze, right? And that's going to be helpful. But sometimes what happens is when uh, we experience things over and over again, that watchdog is always on alert, right? But it can become hypervigilant. It can be uh, extremely on alert, and it doesn't know how to calm down, so we react in certain ways. So an example of this would be someone that refugees or people that have experienced uh, trauma and war, right? So even our military, and then all of a sudden something happens, there's a big bang, right? Or there's fireworks. I tell people a holiday that uh, is really hard for a lot of people I work with is the 4th of July. People would like to celebrate that. That's great. But it's hard for a lot of people that I work with because immediately you see them. I've seen people, they're ducking, and I'm thinking, what's going on? And it can it come across as looking awkward, right? Why are they doing those things? And so we help people understand this with skits and illustrations and things as well of that. But I think the one thing I want to point out with the upstairs and the downstairs brain to get you to understand that is that we, we do need that watchdog, and I think that sometimes we rely too much on that, right? And so we have to know that when those things happen, the fight, the flight, or the freeze, that we can communicate, because the bottom part's not communicating as quickly to the top part, that we can pause and normalize what's happening, saying, oh, that was just fireworks, right? I'm going to be okay. But the reality is, most of us don't understand how to help people process that. And so that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today as well. So I just want to keep thinking about these different things. And I want to show you this. So I work with this man. His name is Dr. John. That's what I talk to him. They call him Dr. John all the time. Him and I work in Nashville together. And I recently just trained him in August. And I told him Wednesday night. I was just with him Wednesday night. Uh, we work with... Um, ex-offenders and addicts. Um, and when we start, when he came to get trained, I said, you are a doctor in psychology. You've been practicing for nearly 30 years. Why are you coming to this training? And then, after the training was over, he said, I want you to come help me with these ex-offenders. Many of them are ex-sex offenders. He said, people don't want to help me with them. And I said, I'll come, I'll come help you with them. Um, but I said, are you sure you want to do this? Like, why do you want to do this? Because you're already treating them. You've helped put many of them on medication. And he said this. And it just stuck out to me. I told him Wednesday night that I was coming here. And I said, is it okay if I, if I say that, right? And he said, yeah, because I really believe we, the church, have to come alongside people and that is the power of God's word that's going to transform them. He said, I know that I've helped them over years, but I want you to come with me and let's walk through what we've been, what you train me in so that 
they can experience that true healing. And I just was like, wow, thank you for saying that. And you've seen that it's not the curriculum. Let me tell you that right now. It's not the curriculum that we'll, we'll talk a little bit about. It's that we're taking basic mental health principles and smashing them together with God's word, and we're carving out space to actually listen to people. It, it, it's really that simple. But I'm going to unpack that a little more. But it really is that. So, uh, if you've not read anything by Dr. Diane Lamberg, then you need to. If anything she writes, go to her website, pick up her books. She's an amazing woman that uh, I tell people, just read everything she writes. Because her and another guy I'm going to reference here, I just tell people, read their stuff. That's what we're going after. So I want to read a longer quote that I have on my phone that she says here that's based off of that right there. So I would, but it's really hard for me to click that. Thus, I'm tethered to this side. I know. I can squat down. I don't mind. You don't need to see me. So I'll read this quote to you, and then you can go from there. So uh, – Dr. Lamberg says this, We, his people, and I believe that with all my heart, we're called to go out of our, ourselves and follow Jesus into the suffering of this world, bearing both his character and his word. As we go, we send missionaries in the scriptures. We provide food, clean water, education, and jobs for many. And we should do those things. We have rarely ever seen trauma as a place of service. If we think carefully about the extensive natural disasters in our time as earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis, combine those with victims of the many man-made disasters, the violent inner cities, wars, genocides, trafficking, rapes, and child abuse, we have a staggering number. I believe if we would stop and look out on suffering humanity, we would begin to realize that trauma is perhaps one of the greatest mission fields of the 21st century. So I want to pause here and tell you about my wife and I. Her name is Angela. Angela and I were in the Middle East, and we were at a gathering for people working with refugees. And people wanted us to come meet some families. And we went into this home, and it was a multi-generational home in a two-bedroom, small home gathering. They were refugees. They weren't in the tents. They were actually in, a, in an urban setting. And they said, uh, we've been here for about, at the time, about two years. Upstairs is our uncle. And he hasn't really spoken in about two years. He's in his 40s. Worked a lot back in the country he came from. But now he... He's upstairs, and he hardly comes down. But for whatever reason, today he said he wants to come down to meet you. Great. Man, that's wonderful. Then they said, we have a four-year-old daughter. And we think that she's traumatized. I said, okay. Why do you think that? They said, well, she takes cold showers and doesn't cry. I said, okay. That doesn't necessarily mean she's traumatized. Uh... Then they said, but she also, she'll grab glass and cut herself and shows no emotion. 
But she used not to do this before things happened. We had to flee our country and come here. And then they said this to me. They said, but we're, we're about to get resettled to the United States. And things are going to get better there. We're headed to California. We're excited. Because we know our, our daughter is going to get better when she gets there. And I couldn't in that moment tell them what you already know. That just because she's moving doesn't mean she's going to get better. And my wife and I sat there over this small kerosene heater and just were crushed. We left there. I was very overwhelmed. I went back to my team in Memphis at that time, and I told them this story. I said, what would we do if that family was resettled in Memphis, Tennessee? I said, we are not prepared. And the community that I'm in is not prepared. And that's what shifted me more toward trauma healing. Is because I do believe what Dr. Lamberg has said here, that it is one of the greatest mission fields in the 21st century. Because, like I said, it doesn't play any favorites. So this is the great thing, is that we have hope. If you say that you follow the one true God, and I don't know all you in this room by any stretch of imagination, but if you say you follow the one true God, we have hope. I have hope. Because it says in Psalm 34 that God is near to the brokenhearted. He's been near to me and to others I've walked with. He sees us. He sees our tears, the Word tells us. So we don't have to be in that darkness. But here's the thing, is we have to be prepared to know how to help people that are in that. And that's what we're going to talk about the rest of the time. So, the simple method we have, we're bringing a group of people together to talk about what's going on. And that they can help process with one another and hopefully heal. And so people have asked me over and over again, why do you do it in groups? Why don't you just do one-on-one? Okay? First of all, I didn't create this. Okay? Secondly, I see the value of it, and we're going to talk about it here in a second, because of community and what other people write about this. Uh, healing, and then talk about... Um, I actually want to go back. So, it brings us to a people in a safe place. So I want to pause there for a second and talk about that. So a safe place. One of the very first things we talk about is do no harm. Do no harm. Okay? And I want to read a couple other quotes to you. One, uh, first I want to tell a story. So this started in sub-Saharan Africa. Started there in about 17, 18 years ago. And what some of the pastors were doing is they were telling traumatized, especially women at the time, it could have been men, but they were telling women this, they were telling them um, to just stop crying, it's okay, right? Get over it. They were actually disciplining people, they were shunning people in their community, and they were also practicing exorcisms, okay? Then after they were trained in trauma, 
those same men and pastors and leaders came back and said, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't realize that we were actually harming them more. And now we've stopped doing as many of those exorcisms and we started practicing listening and being with them. Then this quote here that resonates with me as well. The seeing, hearing, and comprehending by the witness, right, the person that's sitting there listening, hopefully listening, must have the quality of attention that does not impale the victim. There are many ways to impale sufferers with good intentions. There are many ways to impale the sufferer, even with our good intentions. We can take over the victim's story. We can reinterpret the story. We can impose our own theological categories on what's going on in their life. Or we start comparing our suffering to theirs, thus diminishing, warping, or violating their suffering. Anything that trivializes and belittles suffering impales the victim. Thus, we want to create a safe space for them to be able to share, is why I say that. So a lot of people, when we do trainings, people come to them, and I usually ask them, why are you here? And people say, I'm here to help with uh, refugees, homeless. I'm here to help with people in my church. I'm here to help with whatever the case may be. It's always help others. And we tell people, we're going to have you process your own pain, loss, and suffering first before you go try to help someone else. And many times people look at us like, that ain't what I signed up for. And we say, well, that's okay because of this. And, and, and Kathleen O'Connor writes about limitations in Jeremiah and writes a lot about those things. And she says this, when we discount our own pain, it's a sure sign that we cannot really be a, this reverent witness to the pain of others. We have to be able to be, realize that we've been comforted to help comfort others. So, if you were to look at God's Word and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it talks about the same thing. We have the Father of all mercies, the God of comfort, that we can go comfort others, right? But the problem is, most of us don't pause to process our own thing because we actually like helping other people. I, I also was telling my friend, I think one of the best things we could have done for this hour is just to pause and just walk through the secondary trauma that all of you in this room have experienced and just spend the hour just processing that together. <laughs> And uh, really taking care of our own hearts, because that's one of the lessons we talk about. We have to care for ourselves and not get so caught up on that we're caring for other people and how much we really value being needed. Is that, can we be honest with ourselves that I like being needed at times and that I don't want to slow down? And so we have to care for ourselves first before we can go care for others. Okay, and so this talks about in groups and in community. And this is why I started with, why do we do this in groups? And so um, there's a man named Dr. Kirk Thompson. This is the second person I would tell you. If he has a book called The Soul of Shame, and he talks about uh, something about the anatomy of... So that means, yeah, okay. I was like, it's somewhere in on that. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. 
uh, and hopefully some of y'all read, read, read Kurt's stuff. Uh, and he is a neuroscientist, okay, uh, that loves Jesus and pulls all this stuff together and helps me, who knows nothing, like who is not a medical professional, who is not a professional of anything at all, I love Jesus, and that's good enough. So, and I mean that. Uh, so community is central to the way our minds are designed. He talks about as soon as we come out, we're trying to figure out things, and our brain, the neurons are going together. And what happens in trauma is sometimes those things aren't connecting appropriately because of lack of attachment. And then suffering and trauma continues to separate those things, and thus we need community. And so he says this, which I think is amazing. He says, we cannot change what happened, but we can change our memory of it. Which is so interesting to me. And the way that we do that is a process of listening and telling our stories over and over again. So there's also data out there about people that with PTSD, the more they tell their story, it actually heals them, heals their brain. Once again, not a neuroscientist. Dr. Kurt is, so that's why I'm talking about him saying these things. But the relationship is healing those painful memories. And then I want to tell you about why we do it the way we do it. And then we'll start asking questions because I'm pretty sure in a crowd this size, you'll have some questions. Um, so I want to say this. is Years ago, when I was getting involved with trauma, people asked me, uh, why did you choose this approach? And you could have chosen other approaches. And there are other approaches that are needed. Let me say that. This is one approach. We're not saying throw the baby out the bathwater, only do this. But the reason why I lean toward this is because of this bottom part here, that you're getting basic mental health principles paired with the Word of God. It's not we're, we're going to do one side or the other where it's we're just, we need to pray for people, we're going to put them in God's Word, and that'll heal them. That's good. But I've also seen how people have abused Scripture to hurt people. And I've seen how people that have actually come to me and said, uh, I don't want to be a part of something like that because I've been hurt by the church. Right? And then the other side is it's not just psychosocial on that side of it as well, which is needed, but it's a blend of that. And so the authors of that, and one of them is here at this conference. He's not in this room. Or maybe he is. Maybe he is in this room. But uh, uh, they came up with why to, why to have that together. Right? So simple method of this. It's designed to use with simple language and clear ideas that are easy to understand. So we tell people, especially medical professionals and pastors, we usually have the most challenging with medical professionals and, and, and pastors. They come in and they're like, well, this doesn't have enough theology in it, or it doesn't have enough, it doesn't have enough science in it. And I'm telling you, it is in a hundred or so countries, in, in over a hundred and something languages. So for, for it to be reproducible, we have to make it simple, right? That doesn't mean it's simplistic. It just we're making it where you can work with that. So that anyone can use it. So we're talking about, we're working with children all the way to adults and teenagers. We're working with people of different faiths, right? I get asked that a lot. Yes, I use this with people that do not say that they follow the ways of Jesus, Okay, you can ask more about that. Small groups, and this is another thing that's important. It's led by trained facilitators, okay, and you don't need to be professional counselors. So some people, you would hear us if you don't hear me clearly on this, we need professional counselors. 
we talk about there's a pyramid, and at the top of that, there's this 20% of people that maybe need to go to professional counselors, right? Maybe it's 15%. It's, it's just it's irrelevant, the number. But the point is, the vast majority of people, we need to train. Because if you're in the middle of Algeria, you're in the middle of China, you're hanging out with you know, Somali, Somalis or whatever, you're hanging out with people, there's probably not professional counselors nearby. The reason I know that, living in Memphis, I couldn't find professional counselors of the languages I was working in in the city I live in. So I imagine it would probably be harder somewhere else. So the reality is, if we can get all of us to understand when someone tells us that they lost their job, right, or they just had a miscarriage, right, or they're dealing with, they think that their spouse is cheating on them, they're about to get divorced, all those things, those are traumatic things, those are hard things, right? But how do we help people process that without hijacking the conversation, right, and turning it on us, and then we've impaled the victim, right? So if we can train people in that, with basic mental health principles, simple language, and then it's very interactive, unlike right now, <laughs> because there's be challenging to interact with all of you. So most of the groups we have, the healing groups, are like eight people, right, <laughs> roughly eight people. We'll do an equipping group, right, and it'll be max 36 people, right? So it's still small because we want you to share because the value is you sharing your story with someone. But if I said, we're going to go around, and my friend up here front, A-Rod, if I said, A-Rod, you tell your story. Now I go to him, and then after that I go to Ray, and Ray tells his story, and then I go to that, and I go to Lydia. These are just people I know, okay? And they tell the story. Then we do all that. That's going to take a long time, right? So we need to be smaller so it's interactive. So like I said, we do skits. We do different things. There's stories. Uh, and it's very much that we want to interact with that. Now, why is that? The reason why is because we know this, that me telling you stuff right now, you're going to remember about 20% of it. You, me throwing up on a PowerPoint up here, you may get about you may get about 30%, right? If I can get you to actually experience it, right, we're going to move up to about 70 80%. And then if I can get you to learn the material, the curriculum, and then go teach someone else, we're getting up there to about 95% if you're going to retain it. So that's why we want it to be that way. All those factors, and also so we can share our stories with one another. So then the last thing, or the last point of this is, like I said earlier, is the, the adaptability of it. I tell people there's many things in the world that are reproducible, but very few things that are actually reproducing. <laughs> Remember, this started about 18 years ago in sub-Saharan Africa, and now it's in over 100 countries. So that when I was researching that, I was like, it's actually reproducing. It's actually growing. So I've had the opportunity myself to take it to some new countries. Right to be the first one there and say, we want to have it here, and I want to help you get it in your language here so that I don't have to come back. And that's what's happening, right? And so, and the culture's there. Know this method works. There's a lot of data on this. Like we did a, it was, I think it was last year, Ray, that we did this. Like they, they presented this at a gathering. They, they, uh, went to different healing groups, asked participants. They asked about 2,700 uh, participants that had gone through a healing group, right, going through this group that lasts five to maybe ten weeks, depending on what's going on. And they came from 27 different countries. And they asked them to do a test, a pretest, 
They did a post-test, and they followed up after like two to six months. And the symptoms of trauma had gone down by 20% after going through that, and they're doing that. That also, there was about a 13% increase, if I remember my numbers correctly, of them engaging with Scripture more, them going, their, their participation in, in the church involvement as well. And the reason that number wasn't so high is because they didn't start as low, right, is where it was. But we, there's actual data showing that over time people are being healed. It's not just simplistic and being reproducible, but it's actually changing people's lives. And the communities are affected, not just individuals. And that's the thing is where we're seeing whole communities transformed and them understanding. So there's also a lot, and many of you know about this, about having trauma-informed workplaces or trauma-informed communities or trauma-informed, whatever the case may be. So, for example, we'll talk about workplaces. So workplaces, we want to train the employer to know why Bill or Sue is acting a certain way when they come there, right? It's not because they're lazy or they're not showing up on time or whatever. They may be having trauma in their life. But if we can help those employers understand that, then we also train the employee that there's a better understanding of how to help with trauma-informed workplaces, and communities. All right. Um, basically, we're seeing those numbers go down with suicide, divorce, much like those pastors I just shared with you that were coming out of sub-Saharan Africa, the understanding that they were actually doing harm and not realizing that they were doing that. So, Dr. Kirk says this again about why we need to be in communities. And... It's the thing of we can't just process it alone. It actually is the community that's helping us heal in there. And uh, I think that we think we can do it alone, but we need the community to help us with that and the integrating of those things. And so we use this material called Healing the Wombs of Trauma. And, and the subtitle of that is actually called And How the Church Can Help. And once again, taking on what's the responsibility, as Dr. Langberg said, what is the church doing with this? <clears throat> and that we have love of, love of Christ helping us with those things. Languages, curriculum, I want you to know that uh, at the end there will be a website. You can go to that website. Not all the materials are on there, but you need to understand that it's in uh, audio versions, story versions, teen, children, etc., etc. Um, I think this, this skill of that and knowing that we want to come alongside in that so we don't do any harm and knowing how to have that skill and walk alongside you. So there's a mentoring process as well. It's not just we just certify you and you go out and you do it, but we're walking alongside you in that process because of the challenges that can be with, with trauma. And so this here is what... Uh, People ask, well, how, what's the next step? So, uh, so for example, we can come to you, right? Me and my team, there's a large team. There's 13,000 facilitators around the world trained in this, okay? 13,000. So, if you're thinking, I need to have this in French, or I need to have this in Spanish, I need to have this in something, wherever you are, whatever the language that be, or you're like, I live in this country, or I live in this part of the United States, more than likely we can come to you. Or... If you live in the Nashville area, we're doing trainings in December and January. Let me know. And, uh, so, and those trainings take 
three to five days, depending on what training you want to do. So there's these core lessons we do, and I won't get into the nuts and bolts of that. But then also that process, you can do supplementary lessons, like your community may be dealing with rape or suicide or domestic abuse or addictions, right, whatever the case may be. Um, so we want to tailor that to fit what is going on with your community. Um, and then Dr. Kurt also says this, which I thought was interesting. So this is not an evangelistic tool. I want to be clear with you on that. And so I say that because many people have said, well, you know, you're seeing people change or whatever. It's not designed for that. However, we have seen this happen. We have seen lives transformed and that it, it's this leading to evangelism and true healing being based off of the vulnerability that you have within the church. And here's the real honest thing is that a lot of your, church need, your churches need to be vulnerable, right? Uh, I mean, that's a whole other conversation we can talk about with that. And so I wanted to, to end with this, really, this last slide here, and then we can have questions. So we talk about this trauma healing arc experience. And so a crisis happens, suffering happens, we go to listening, we go over this, this side of the arc. Most of the training goes to forgiveness. I was just telling my, my friend that we're, we're working on the other side of the arc of how to build resiliency, and uh, there's other, other things that are being piloted on that side. But most of it happens on this side, the training we do. But here is the sad, sad thing, friends, is that most of us never get to the second point. We, we, some of us, or the people we're working with, we've suffered, we experienced some kind of crisis, and we never are able to share our story. So we never get over to grieving and lamenting and taking the pain to Jesus and seeing forgiveness and bringing about reconciliation and resiliency because we've never had an opportunity to share our story. So if this was a smaller group, right, what we would do is I would do a listening exercise with you. I'd pair you up and we would just start doing that. And I'd model for you how we do that. Obviously, that would not be feasible today with everything we have. And asking some really basic questions that help you process what's going on so that when you're sitting across with someone, right, it's designed for group-based, but you could be sitting across someone uh, at a coffee shop and they tell you something and you have these really simple yet profound questions to walk them through so that they can share their story. And we practice being a good listener because many of us in this room are probably good listeners and many of us in this room are probably terrible listeners, but we think we're good listeners, Right, And so that is one of the very first things as we teach people is how to listen. And I know that sounds really, really, really simple. But if you know how to listen to God well and listen to others well, you're going to accomplish a lot in this world. I really believe that. So what's your next move? What's God telling you to do? And I don't know what that is for all of you in this room. But it may be uh, you need to go get trained in this. Or maybe you're thinking, hey, I'd love for someone to come talk about this in my community. And we do that. We come in and just like talk with leaders and cast vision, more of that, and whatever the case may be. I want you to know that the reason that God brought me here today is to serve you guys. I really mean that. So however I can serve you in any way, feel free to contact me. And so uh, that's my information. You can contact me. You can go to traumahealinginstitute.org 
and lots of more information. There's an events tab on there. You click on that, and you'll see when the next trainings are that are coming up, and they may be near you or not. I tell people all the time, if you want me to come to your church or my team or someone else, it doesn't have to be me. It could be a, there's a whole, like I said, there's thousands of us. We can come to your place and help you do that three- or five-day training in any way whatsoever. So, what questions do we have? I'll pause there so that we can ask anything. Lydia, yes. It's always those. You know, <laughs> always the front row people. <clears throat> Yeah, that's a good question. So the question is, do you have any examples of how you've seen this in clinical setting or in health care settings, something like this? Something that range? Yeah, I work in an acute care pediatric burn center, and so it's like an ongoing You work in acute, I'm just repeating it because it's being recorded, so you work in a burn center, is that what you said? Okay, so seeing trauma there, it's what happened there, right? So is your question, Lydia, like how have I used this or how has you see trauma? Because I think we know that trauma is in those places. Yeah, okay. How, how do you use this to train healthcare professionals? Do you have an example of doing that? Right. Um, there's other things in this room that some examples. Some of the things I have is, yes, so I've come to healthcare professionals that have asked me, how can we use this in our clinic or other things? And so we go in and we train them the same way we train anyone else and give them the understanding that because just because you are a healthcare professional doesn't mean you know how to listen well. I mean, and also you don't understand trauma. I mean, that, that, we don't, let's not make that huge jump. I mean, I mean I'm not, that's not an insulting comment. That's just we're human. We don't know everything. And so we go in and we help those clinics understand that and how they can implement that. And that's the same way we do with other places. School systems, businesses, others, we're telling people, don't necessarily create a new program. Implement that in with the water you're doing and let it be integrated in that. So there are examples of people talking about that and how they're doing that around, and other people also trying new things and looking at how they, how they can implement that well. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. repeating the question. So the question is, do we find that individual trauma healing, one-on-one trauma healing, right, versus group is faster? And I would say, I don't think anyone would necessarily say that it's faster because you're dealing with different traumas or different things. I think one thing is, if I'm sitting in a group, it, what trauma wants to do is isolate you, right? It wants you to, you're the only one that feels this way, and right? And so, if I'm able to be in a group and share some of those things, it's the, oh, you feel the same way I do, and that you're building connectivity right in that. And that's what, quite honestly, I believe that the enemy wants to do is separate people, right, and remove them from community. We have a communal God, right, and Kurt talks a lot about that as well. We have a communal God, and so he created us for community. We're being image bearers of him, right, so he wants us to be in community. And so I'm not saying that you shouldn't do one-on-one counseling. If you hear me say that, you walk away that and some of your you know, trained counselors, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying we don't need that. I'm saying that the reality is is what even my friend Dr. John said. We have medicine, we have education, but we actually need this as well. So I wouldn't say it goes faster. I wouldn't say one goes faster than another. I really don't think that because I think it depends. it's too much dependent on the person in some ways. Yeah. Yes, sir? Training that you do, is that available to say 
medical doctors or other healthcare professionals that want to learn more about this to gain some insight into it, be of some help. Is that you wanted to come to Nashville or there was a training perhaps you could participate in? Is that it's open to anyone. Here's the thing. is you'll, In the United States, we'll say you need to be 18 years old and speak English. But if some of you are like, hey, my community speaks Spanish, we can get facilitators to do it in Spanish. If you want it in another language, we can do that. So we train anyone that says that have competencies, right? So you're able to manage your own well-being. You're, you're, you want to care for other people as well, right, that you are practicing things. So just because you go through the training – I'll be really clear. We don't certify everyone that just goes to the training. You have to show that you are actually have those competencies. But, yes, we can train any and all of you in this room, whatever education level you are or lack thereof, such as myself. So, yes, ma'am. So the question, I'm going to restate it, and you tell me if I'm hitting on it, is can this particular program be working with people that are in trauma and that have ongoing trauma? Uh, and so I was like, I thought that was going to um, So I would say that is a, an excellent question, right? So me being uh, a part of a refugee resettlement agency, we ask ourselves, when is the best time to do this? Is it when they first get here or we wait later? What would you say to that? What do you think? <laughs> right. So we, we erred on the side of we're going to wait a little bit because of the transition, right, because it was so hard. But it could be both, depending on the situation, who's going with those things. In those camps, so there's things happening in refugee camps all the time right now, a lot of things with this particular curriculum that's happening in Uganda, Kenya, Ethiopia, other places as well. I'd be glad to talk to you about that. And, uh, and, and the people there on ground can tell you better of who they're actually selecting to be a part of that. Because just because you raise your hand you want to be in the group doesn't mean we let you in the group. Because just like with Dr. John, I said, some of these people that you're wanting to come to this group may be not ready for it because of different things that are going on. So I want to be clear of that. We want to help as many people, but they're also sometimes we need to pause with that. And sometimes they go through these groups and we say, you actually need to, can I, can I help you and refer you to someone that I know that's a professional counselor? Because it's beyond the scope of what we're dealing with with some things. What else? Anything else? I see here and I'll come to you. Yes. How long is the, the program for someone to attend? Not for training, but when implement it. Great question. So the training, I'll say that, is three to five days, right? So, but if you implement it, it can be done a variety of ways. So, for example... Uh, there's at least five lessons we want you to do, okay? And in those lessons, we're talking about if God loves us, why is there suffering, right? That's the first lesson, this universal kind of thing. And all that stuff, you can go to the website and look at that. Then you're walking through listening, grieving, taking our pain to Jesus, forgiveness, those kind of things. And then we add those other things. Each lesson takes about an hour and a half to two hours to do that lesson. And then if you're translating, obviously it takes longer. Some people like to do a weekend retreat. 
But most people do it as, hey, we're already meeting on Wednesday night with our friends. Let's just start doing Wednesday night with this and just start doing six weeks that way. So it can be shorter or longer, but a minimum is probably going to be five weeks. With your example in the beginning where you spoke about the girl and the uncle upstairs. And right, yes. And you came back to, um, to Nashville. What, what did you, is this the main thrust? If they were coming to Nashville, um, what would you have thought? Is it just this or what other programs? I was interested in what's happened to your team. What would you have told them? Uh, well, that, that's a Thanks, John. So that team of mine is in Memphis, so I left them. So uh, No, I'm kidding. Uh, but uh, uh, So they have to figure it out on their own. No, it's it's a little bit of both. So I worked uh, with many people in this room that were connected with, uh, that were doing the, the health care for the refugees in Memphis. And so we, we had to work together, honestly. I said, we need to do a better screening to see where trauma is in their life when they get here. And they're coming to do screenings already for you for other things, but let's do some more stuff to see if there's trauma in their life. So it was a collaborative, it was a team community effort in that. So it wasn't just those kind of things. But this was the main thing that has been implemented in Memphis that's still being used there. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Before I see, you have a question in the back? Oh, this one. Okay, yes, ma'am. Excellent question. So how do you get people that are coming from an honor-shame culture to do this, right? Because it's shameful for them to admit that their uncle uh, abused them, right? Or whatever the example would be. So the, the short answer is we do use it in honor-shame cultures. And then we actually just um, have continued to be piloting a lesson about honor and shame, actually. So that other side of this arc over here, we're talking more about honor and shame as well. So I do agree with you that it can be challenging because it goes back to trust and relationships and pushing into that. But it is being done. Um, And how you do it is in relationship, right? I mean, that's the whole thing. I'm not just asking, you know, whoever. It's inviting people that I already have a relationship with. And I think that's part of it. That's a... That's a short answer to a very long question that you're asking. That's a really good question. I'd be glad to talk to you about it longer afterwards if you want to, of how we play that out. And we also show verses in the Bible that talk more about not just guilt, right, but talk about honor and shame and how God restores honor and he cares for those that have even been shamed It won't put us to shame. Different things with that and teaching those lessons and showing that. Um, and so it, it takes a while to unpack that. But... It is being done, and it's. I personally have used this with multiple faiths in other countries and in the U.S., and so I know it can be done, and I know we're still learning about it as well. Anybody else? Lydia, have something else? <laughs> yeah. So, so when, you're, when you get to the point of bringing pain to the cross with a non-believer, how do you even word that? Yeah. So if you get to this point here, where if we believe that Jesus is truly a healer, he uses people in medicine, but he's a true healer, what do we do when we get here with a non-believer? Okay? So Lydia went broad on me with a non-believer. So um, the, the reality is, I want to be really clear on this, is that it is never, ever, ever a bait and switch. It's never, hey, come share your story, and by the way, we're going to talk about the Bible. No. It's always up front. We're telling them. We're using the Bible. This is what's going on. And we've had people say, 
I don't want to do it. But I'll be honest with you. There's some stories I would like to tell if I wasn't being recorded, just to be honest with you, uh, that with some things, but I'll be generic enough to say this, is that there have been leaders of other faiths that have come to me that practice other things and have other uh, backgrounds. And I said, I think I can help you with what you're dealing with. Because they talked about all the trauma that was going on in their, their community. And I said, however, I want you to know that I use this particular holy book called the Bible. And they've said to me, please help us. Because we don't know what to do. Because our holy scriptures don't teach us about forgiveness and pain and suffering and what to do with it. We can't answer that very first question of if God loves us. First of all, we're not sure we believe that. And then how in the world, if he does, is there suffering? And so sometimes we reword that phrase. We may not say bring your pain to the cross. We don't always have to have a cross, right? There's nothing magical or mystical about having a cross up here or something like that. But we may say, bring your pain to the healer. Bring your pain to Jesus, the healer. So, all right. Let's see. A couple more questions, and then we can be done. Anybody has anything else? Here, and then over here. I'll come to you first, because I heard you say. Over here. How do you implement this in a secular-based, for example, university hospital? Well, great question. Uh, I, I'm not saying I've, I've covered all these bases. I will say that I've had school systems, right, public school systems, say, we need help with this. And I said, uh, well, you know, we're talking about Jesus. And they're like, we'll do it off-site. We'll figure it out. I'm being serious. We'll figure it out. Our kids... Our children need this. There's gun violence or whatever is happening. We're going to figure it out. You can do an after-school program. We'll do it off-site. So there's always ways around that, and I'm not, I'm not trying to cop out on that. I'm just saying like, if people really want it, right? when people get desperate, like these leaders I was telling you about of other faiths, they're like, we need something. We, I, I don't know what to do. right? And they'll, they'll figure that. But it's also, once again, I think that God gives us favor when we're just honest with people. Right? I mean... <laughs> hey, I think we can help you with some things, and we are going to talk about that. And people may say, well, we can't do that here in the school system, for example, because I don't, I don't have a particular example personally of going into something like a secular you know, university hospital. But I'm sure there's ways to work with that, and others in this room may have done that. Yes, ma'am. Um, can you, this is probably in the training, but could you briefly just talk about the difference between grieving and lamenting? Sure. Yeah, I'd be glad to. Uh, I'll do that briefly. And so so grieving is, we talk about going on a grief journey, right? And we act it out. And it's super interactive. And you talk about the fact of you go to the, this village of denial and anger, and then you go to this village of no hope, and then you go to this village of new beginnings, and you go back and forth in between them, okay? So you're grieving those things. And you can grieving is mourning the loss of anything, right? I lost my job, you know. Uh, my girlfriend broke up with me, you know. My grandma died or whatever. Now, lamenting is a process that uh, many people uh, are not familiar with. And many of you may be. I, I did not grow up with that tradition of, of lamenting. So lamenting is bringing your complaint to God. And so we talk about uh, that the Psalms have more uh, lament Psalms than anything else. We see the book of Lamentations. We see things in Jeremiah. We talk about 
What you're doing by lamenting is you are acknowledging that you have great trust in God. It is not a sign of doubt. It's actually saying, I trust God. Because God, you have to solve it. I can't do it on my own. I'm acknowledging that I cannot solve this problem. And so you just complain to God. And so we walk through a process of what that looks like. So that's a brief uh, explanation of what the two differences are. Okay, one last question before my friend's going to come up and tell you to do something to think here. Anything else? Yes. Um, so with this process of lamenting, is that something you do as a group, or do you teach them how to do it and then tell them to go and do this like in their prayer closet or whatever? So this process of lament, do you actually teach them to do that, or do they do it right then, or do they take them to go home and they do it themselves? Yes. We practice lament. So we'll all write out. There's seven parts of a lament. Not all seven are there, and we talk about what lamenting is. And then we say, okay, now we're going to take the next 20 minutes, and you're going to write a lament. And people say, well, I don't know what to complain about. I have nothing to complain about. Then we talk about communal laments, right? That sometimes there's community laments, there's individual laments. And then we say, now you can use this as a skill. So part of the whole process we're doing in equipping is giving people skills to build toward the other side of that arc of resiliency, right? So we're giving them... Hey, there, you know, just because you went through this crisis and you came all the way over here, life tells me you're probably going to go through another crisis. And you're probably going to suffer again. Right? So how do we lament there as well? So you're giving them those tools, and then they go back, and then some communities do lament through poetry, dance, songs, different ways. Different cultures, different things, do different ways. We do teach it then, practice it then, go use it later. Hey, thank you all so much. I'm here. Um, I'll throw this back up here just so you have it. Um, And I think that there's some forms you need to fill out. And when you're finished filling out that form, you need to give it to my friend here that has his orange shirt on after you fill out that form. So appreciate it. God bless you guys.